Well, let's pray together before we come to study this passage from Revelation 2. Lord, in 2 Timothy 3, you say all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. Your aim is that we might be thoroughly equipped and fully furnished in giving us this authoritative word to be at work in us. Lord, help us to learn the things you would have us learn, that we may live the way you would have us live for your glory. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Well, tolerance is a buzzword in our society. It's probably the characteristic our culture prizes most. Uh, to be identified as tolerant is a great compliment. You know, you're someone who affirms and accepts people different from you. But conversely, to be called or branded intolerant is a great offence, probably more offensive than being called some of the swear words that you might hear. And that's because people think in this culture, if you don't agree with someone or something that people say, you must absolutely hate them and be intent on denying them whatever they want to hold to. Now, that's a shame, really, because that's not what tolerance is, either by definition or by practice. I mean, I'd love it if we actually, if we lived in a properly tolerant society, in the true sense of the word, where we actually respected one another's beliefs and opinions and even defended a person's right to air them, even if we completely disagree with them. That's true tolerance. But that's not the tolerance we find in society today. No, this tolerance redefined that we experience almost demands that we have no verbal disagreement with them or no speaking out against something, even if it's viewed, even if those uh, teachings or beliefs or worldviews are viewed as fundamentally harmful. Now, that kind of tolerance is dangerous and that kind of tolerance can easily trickle into the church. It's easy to become a church that becomes uh, standoffish uh, or has a standoffish approach to belief and behaviour, where to speak out against some teaching, some lifestyle, a leader or another member, is met with the misquotation of Matthew 7.1, where it says, do not judge lest you too be judged. But that's not right, because there are beliefs and behaviours in local churches that cannot be tolerated. And the reason why they cannot be tolerated is because... Jesus doesn't tolerate them, and that's what we find in this section of Revelation 2 and this letter to the church at Thyatira. Jesus, the one who sees with holy perception and whose feet are ready to trample sin, has a message for them and all churches who will later read this letter. So there's something in here for us. So let's see what Jesus has to say. Uh, I'm going to split it up into three sections and uh, this is number one. The growth, the growth of a church pleases Jesus. Now verse 18 and 19 tell us that Jesus sees the effect the gospel is having on the church in Thyatira. Qualitatively, they're showing all the vital signs of gospel faith. He says, I know your deeds, your love and faith your service and perseverance. So they are doing good, doing good deeds. 
And they're not just going through the motions like the church at Ephesus was. They're doing it out of love and they're demonstrating faith and uh, doing so despite the opposition, hence the encouragement uh, for their or commendation of their perseverance. Now, that's the kind of report card you want for a church, isn't it? You know, qualitatively, the gospel is at work in them and going out through them. But quantitatively, its ministry is also growing. Jesus says in verse 18, as it continues, you are now doing more than you did at first. And that's, of course, what the gospel does, whether personally or in a church. It multiplies, it increases. Back in 2 Peter chapter 1, when he's dealing with uh, or talking about uh, a list of uh, characteristics and attributes um, of Christians and churches um, that are similar to the one that we find in Revelation 2 in the church to Thyatira, he says, if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, so there's an expectation of personal gospel growth in there, he says, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's the expectation of church or kingdom growth. Now, that's what Jesus sees in this church in Thyatira, and that's what encourages him. That's what he commends. Now, pause there and ask, is the gospel having the same effect on our church family, on Charlotte Chapel? I think there are many reasons for us to be thankful, from baptism testimonies to discipleship discussions. Isn't it common for us to hear one another talk about aspects of our faith where we've grown more in either knowledge or in godliness compared to a previous time, a year ago or five years ago. I think we do see that. Uh, we should give God thanks and praise because as we remember 1 Corinthians 3, 7, it's God who gives such growth. So we should praise him and more prayers of thanksgiving to him gives him glory. But encouragements mustn't lead to personal complacency or church complacency or any idleness or blind spots for us because dangers lurk and ministry is easily impeded or even undone in churches that, you know, to a large extent, please Jesus. And that's what the Thyatirans found. While the growth of the church pleased Jesus, second of all, the toleration of false teaching displeased Jesus. Now, verse 20 tells us that Jesus sees the effect that a Jezebel is having on the church in Thyatira. Now, who is Jezebel? Well, you can read about her in the Old Testament books of 1st and 2nd Kings. She was, how can I put it? She was a Sidonian princess, a cult priestess, and a wicked witch, all wrapped up into one. It's quite a combo, isn't it? Uh, and Ahab, uh, king of Israel, went against God's word and married her. He wasn't allowed to. And guess what? She had a terrible influence on him and on God's people, misleading both him and them into the kind of things that God hated. So she taught Ahab and Israel how to worship another god called Baal in sexually explicit ways. She slaughtered hundreds of God's prophets from her, for her own advantage. 
and she even secured, by both intimidation and murder of Ahab's own citizens, land that didn't belong to her, as she did with Naboth's vineyard. Now, the prophet Elijah, in 1 Kings 21-25, gives us a great summary of what they were like. There was never anyone like Ahab, who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. That's the picture that we have in the background to inform our understanding of what Jezebel in Thyatira is doing. She's misleading God's people with false teaching. As verse 20 says, she calls herself a prophet. Claiming to speak on God's behalf, this teaching that Jesus refers to later in verse 24 as Satan's so-called deep secrets. Now, that is what false teachers tend to do. Without the Spirit of God calling them and the Church of God testing and affirm them, affirming them, they teach by their own appointment. And they spout stuff that sounds like it will take you deeper into your faith, manipulating you into feeling a need and into seeing them as the provider. And there's plenty of that kind of teaching around today. But follow her teaching and you'll not find the deep things of God. You'll only find the judgment of God. So she is misleading God's people into sin and into sinful practice. Verse 20 says that by her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and eating a food sacrifice to idols. Now, the word servants in the New Testament and in this book of Revelation can refer to either church leaders or church members. It's 50-50 really. So it could mean here that Jezebel is misleading some of the church leaders, much like old Jezebel did with Ahab, the leader of Israel. That's possible and we should pray for our leaders. But it could also mean that she's misleading some of the church members, just, and that's just as possible, and we, we can't be sure because the con in the context it's, it's not clear. But in any case, both church members and leaders are equally susceptible to the misleading hand of false teaching that offers deeper insights with their corresponding appeals to our fallenness and our desires for things that God says no to, like forbidden sex or forbidden foods. Now again, pause there and ask, what teaching misleads God's people today? Uh, there are plenty of them around. Can you think of any? Can you think of any teaching that claims to be from God and leads to permissiveness in sin? Do you ever hear of Pastors or church leaders talk like they know better than the archaic people who've gone before them on issues like, oh, I don't know, marriage and sexuality and gender. Have you heard people speak approvingly of the things that God's word clearly disapproves of, claiming that they now know that God and his character, that even that was for back then and he would never possibly hate or condemn anyone going against his word now. Well, people dare to believe that and dare to call it progressive, but it's not. It's dangerous. And here's what we need to realise. Jesus will not have any of it. Jesus says the church's tolerance of Jezebel is intolerable. 
that's actually the first thing that he condemns. You know, even as he report uh, he reports on the the sexual immorality and eating food sacrificed to idols, but he condemns their tolerance. Verse twenty, I have this against you: you tolerate that woman Jezebel. Now, the word tolerance here means to let go or to leave unrestrained. Now, but the question is, why would they do that, given the damage that this woman is doing? Well, it could be out of fear, I guess. It could be that she's a powerful woman in the city or powerful woman in the church, like old Jezebel was. You know, she could ruin you if you really got on the wrong side of her. But maybe it was out of a misunderstanding of love. Maybe they thought, oh, this is really bad what she's saying and what she's doing, but I guess there's nowhere better for her to be than the church. Have you heard things like that before? I have. It's a, it's a crazy idea, isn't it? We, I mean, we wouldn't do that in other realms. You know, think about it. If a, if a lodger moved into a home, our home, and started teaching our kids that it's okay to swear at your parents, you know, spray paint your bedroom with some stuff and watch 18 rated movies all night and go and have a kick about uh, five a side in the motor, on, on the motorway. You know, who are we to judge? Express yourself. You know, we would not find that kind of thing tolerable because it's fundamentally dangerous. No, we wouldn't accept that. We wouldn't stay quiet about that. We would say something about it. We would say, what are you doing? That's inappropriate. It's completely unacceptable. You should say sorry and repent. And if you don't change, pack your bags. Well, for the sake of your children and to protect them from being misled, then we exercise discipline. So why should it be any different in the church? Uh, could it be that churches are content to skim read passages like Matthew 18, uh, to prefer to avoid the pain of going through what the church did in 1 Corinthians 6 when they expelled the immoral brother? Or could it be that we doubt what God's word says in Hebrews 12, where it talks about, well, discipline as a form of love. Yeah, it's not tolerance that Jezebel and her followers need, is it? It's repentance. Now, the church may have let Jezebel's uh, teaching and sinful practice go, but the passage tells us clearly that Jesus won't. Jesus says he'll discipline her and those who follow her. That's what we see in verses 21 and 23. And uh, there are pretty strong words, but let's notice a couple of things about it. First of all, that false teaching is so dangerous, he sends suffering to wake people up to its effects. You know, in 22 and 23, Jesus says he'll cause her and her children, those who follow her effectively, not real children, but spiritual children, um, it'll cause suffering. Now that's really striking because you might say, oh, well, Jesus, uh, Jesus would never do that. And I would say, well, hold on a second, Jezebel. Don't forget Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter five. You know, the church belongs to Jesus and he will defend it. The salvation of souls is contingent on the church's holiness and effectiveness in maintaining the gospel and preaching the gospel. And Jesus will do everything to preserve it because he's wrapped up his reputation and his glory. 
in it. Now, Jesus saying this is strong, but I don't want you to think that it's a knee-jerk or an angry, impetuous reaction. No, verse 21 shows us that Jesus has been patient. He says, I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. Do you know what that tells us? It tells us that Jesus had employed uh, other forms of discipline already, but she hasn't got the message and is apparently unwilling to change, as he says. So that's why he then employs stronger discipline designed to make her come to her senses. And isn't that gracious of him? I mean, think about it. If momentary suffering wakes her up to the eternal suffering that she's headed for, and she manages to avoid it by repenting, do you think she'll be upset at that momentary painful discipline? No. Well, I wouldn't be. Not in light of what she had just escaped. Well, I guess the second thing we need to see is that false teaching is so dangerous that Jesus sends suffering to wake churches up to the reality of his glory and the stupidity of standing against him or defiling his work. Back in Acts 5, when Jesus judged uh, Ananias and Sapphira, the result was a spreading awe. It says in chapter 5, verse 11, great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. And that's what Jesus' discipline to Jezebel creates in his churches. As verse 23 says, Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds and will repay each of you according to your deeds. So think twice, false teachers, before you go about corrupting the body of Christ, the gospel of Christ, and impeding the mission of Christ, think twice. Christ will not have it. So what should we do? Uh, well, we should do what Jesus tells the Thyatiran church to do. To those who have not fallen foul of that false teaching and are being uh, woken up to the need to repent. He says, hold on to the truth of the gospel. Don't be taken away by it or misled by it. And here's why. Number three, holding on to sound teaching is rewarded by Jesus. We see that in verses 24 through to 29. Jesus calls this church to do two things, okay? Hold on is the first thing. Verses 24 and 25. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. If we're ever tempted to let go of the gospel or move on from the gospel, don't. Hold on to it. You never need any deeper things. If you have the gospel and if you have the Holy Spirit himself living in you as a deposit, guaranteeing the inheritance to come, Jesus says, you have enough. The work is already done. Jesus places no extra burden on his people, makes no regulatory or extra kind of penitential demands on us. No, if you believe the gospel and hold on, if you persevere in that faith until the end, it's enough. You've got everything you need in the gospel. 
So be faithful with what you know. Or you'll want to grow in it, of course. To grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. But never let go of it. Never depart from it. Never seek any extra bits to add to it. Never, ever seek to take away from it. Hold on to it. Believe it. It's the key to our salvation. And to help us hold on, what does Jesus offer us? Secondly in here, two very special rewards. To help us hold on to the gospel that we have, he incentivizes us by helping us look forward. We look forward. Now, we've seen this at the end of each of these letters uh, to the churches, haven't we? There are rewards for those who are Nike, victorious, and the, the prizes are piling up for the faithful ones in these letters, aren't they? Well, verse 26, we see another one. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them like an iron with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from the Father. He is quoting Psalm 2. The Psalm that says, God laughs in the face of man-made schemes and man-made teaching designed to dethrone God and his plans. And it also says God judges those who do not kiss the Son in peace, that's Jesus, in order to avoid his wrath or his judgment. Now, he dashes them to pieces like pottery. Now, the reward for those who endure the alluring of false teaching and hold on to the gospel is that they get to play their part in this judgment to come. That's astonishing. It's uh, 1 Corinthians 6 that says, do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? Now, think about it. That is a great comfort to churches back then and even today who are afflicted by their enemies. Either external persecution or internal corruption caused by false teachers. That is a great comfort to churches. That is a promise of vindication in the end. Even if we're wronged now, stand firm, it will all be right. Now, you may be watching this and realising, wow, I'm actually on the wrong side of this, um, this judgment. Um, I'm actually not believing this gospel that you're telling everybody to hold on to. Therefore, where does that leave me? Well, the Bible says, it says you will face his wrath. That's what Psalm 2 says. But Psalm 2 also tells you what you should do in order to find yourself on the right side, on the gospel side on Jesus' side, kiss the son, or he'll be angry. And it says, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Happy, truly, are those who hide themselves in Jesus Christ through faith in him. Everything I'm talking about just now is a reminder for us that he has done it all. He has paid the price to take that judgment for our sin, the sin of all who would put their faith and trust in him, on himself on the cross. That's why those who hold on to the gospel and don't depart from it will not face the judgment, but pass through it and indeed take part in it. While you can repent of your sins, believe the gospel, believe the good news of Christ's death and his resurrection and his reign and be saved. Talk to us about it, get in touch with us, you'll find more information at the end. Well, 
you can join when you do that, when you take refuge in him, you can join with those who believe in enjoying the second of the two rewards that we find in this passage. And the second reward, I think, is even more astonishing. Verse 28 says, I will also give that one, the one who holds on and overcomes, the morning star. Now, what is that? It sounds like one of those strange gifts that you can buy online where you get a star named after you. But it's, you're not, it's never really named after you, is it? Um, now, it's not that. I mean, you'd bin that. But this you would treasure forever. You treasure this more than anything. And I would even dare to say you would treasure this more, this prize more than even seeing a loved one in heaven. More than being without suffering in heaven. And more than being without sin and guilt and shame in heaven. So what is it? Well, what is this morning star, as is often the case in Revelation? If there's an image that you don't understand, can I encourage you, keep reading. Right? The answer is in the text. Keep reading all the way through to Revelation 22:16, and you'll hear these words. I, Jesus have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. The bright morning star is Jesus himself. And he says, if you are Nike, if you are victorious in me, you get me. Now that's incredible because the God of unimaginable glory that we met in chapter one and before whom John fell down as though dead, he says to us, you get me, you little human person on earth, seemingly inconsequential, you get to know me in glory. You get to be with me in glory. Isn't that astonishing? You may not get all the things that you would like in this world. You may well get a ton of things that you really don't like and don't want rejection, abuse, hardship. But when all is said and done, Jesus says, you get me. Well, that is a precious reminder of great truth. A reminder of, I think John Piper said it well when he said, God is the gospel. He said, the gospel of Jesus and his many precious blessings are not ultimately what make the good news good. They are the means of seeing and savouring Jesus himself. Beautiful. He is the gospel. He is our prize. He is the one that we delight in, hold on to, get to be with forever. So what lessons have we learned from this, uh, from opening someone else's letter? Well, Charlotte Chapel, we have learned a number of things. We've learned that the growth of our church will please Jesus when we, uh, and we should pray for and pursue ongoing growth. We've also learned that if we tolerate false teaching, it will displease Jesus and we must stand strong in the gospel and firm against false teaching. And we must do so bearing in mind that he will discipline those who are misled by anti-gospel teaching, but also help those who don't fall foul of it to hold on to sound teaching with 
these very rewards in mind. And as we have seen each time in these letter to the churches, our obedience seems to be tied up with our hearing, with our ears. Whoever has ears to hear, let, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches and with the Lord's help, obey and live. Let's pray together. Our Father, you are gracious to show us these things and teach us these lessons. Thank you for showing us the things that please you, the gospel fruit that you seek in those churches that faithfully hold on to the gospel. And thank you for showing us how intolerant it is to entertain uh, false teaching and sinful living within our midst. Help us to handle these things in a way that is consistent with your word. And help us to do so remembering the reward that is extended and held out to those who hold on and to those who are victorious. Let that be true of us. And we thank you for all the ways that you're at work in our church family, for blessing us in the way that you do. Lord, help us grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus and to grow through more and more people coming to know you. And may the, the number of prayers of thanksgiving and of praise grow also for your glory, in Jesus' name.